0: John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Um, That is a nasty thing. If you look it up uh, in any sort of history book, you will find the flogging in first century Roman times was a nasty affair. It wasn't uh, a few bruises, there was uh, uh, blood and uh, all sorts of uh, uh, skin flagellation, and and it's a grim thing. So even that sentence, to start off, should make you quiver slightly. And it goes on. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in purple robe, and went up to him again and again, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. And uh, some of the other gospel writers talk about them spitting on him. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered here, Look, I'm bringing Jesus out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! I wonder if you've ever been unjustly accused or uh, um, sort of falsely uh, said that, that you've done something when you were innocent of it. That is Jesus' position. He did not deserve this. But Pilate answered them, you take, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for any charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. It's a very important thing, that Jesus was accused of proclaiming to be the Son of God when he wasn't. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where did you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Everyone saying no answer. No answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. This guy was innocent and Pilate was trying to hold that up. Um, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. That would have got Pilate very worried uh, because he was under he was in the Roman structure of rule and uh he was they were essentially calling him a traitor. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And there we have politics and disingenuous answers and all sorts Uh, going on finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified and so the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross he went to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha and there they crucified him with two others one on each side and Jesus in the middle the apostle John confronts In his words, the brutality of the hours leading up to Jesus' execution. John makes sure we know that Jesus didn't die, just die for our sins, but he was tortured. The manner of his death is severe enough indeed. Like So we talk about crucifixion. It is an awful way to die. But there was a whole pathway to that. That had humiliation, pain and torture. There was nakedness, there was spitting, there were insults, there were whips, there was blood. There is no way that Jesus could have any self-respect by the time he came to that cross. It had all been stripped away. He had no dignity left. Now, we're not going to turn to it, but in Acts 2, Peter talks about Jesus' crucifixion. And he said God was in charge of it. And so you've got this tension. You have all this brutality and evil, and then you have Peter saying, and God was sovereign over it. And so you either got to say it's nonsense, or you've got to reconcile those two things. And Christians for 2,000 years have reconciled the fact that the good, good father we worship this morning permitted his son Jesus to endure all that grief and pain. That's the only way you can uh, round this up. We live in a world of comfort. The 21st century, we are learning really well how to live in comfort. I have discovered heated seats in cars and air conditioning. Some of you know the joy of painkillers. If you've ever had a toothache and then you can take a painkiller and oh, that pain goes away. We seem to have more cushions in our house than people. And it's incredible the level of comfort we can inspire to. And as we enjoy all this comfort and privilege... It is in stark contrast to the end of Jesus' life. And we can be tempted to think that that is in the past and Jesus just wants us to have more cushions and more air conditioning and more uh, heated seats in life. And indeed, the popular preachers of today will tell you that. They will tell you God wants to bless you so uh, that you have... Uh, Just the best house, the best car, and the most comfiest, goose-down pillow under your rear bottom uh, as much as you'd like. But we have a problem. The Bible says something else. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. So it says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. So we've just been talking about how uh, servants should obey their masters, even when they're in unjustly accused. And it goes this in 21. To this you were called, and everyone's ears perk up, I'm called to something, what new vision has Jesus got for me? What wonderful blessing has God got for me? What uh, leader of the free world position can I aspire to? And this is what the Apostle Peter tells Christians. He says, to this you are called. Because Christ suffered, and Christ suffered basically as much as a man could. There is no more suffering uh, than Jesus faced. Because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example, you should follow in his steps and you will find all sorts of uh, interpretations that try and get out of it, but essentially saying, Jesus suffered, we follow him, and so we can expect to suffer. And the church resounds with hallelujahs and raised hands, and we just love the idea that Christians get to suffer in life, don't we? No. Peter makes very clear that in his journey to the cross, Jesus faced unimaginable suffering. And he says, if you love Jesus, you get to expect the same. Now, hopefully, we all aspire to live like him. You know, we hopefully speak kindly, we want to be humble, we want to be generous, we want our conduct to be holy and above reproach. These are all the qualities of our Lord. You know, when um, uh, Michaela read uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, there's some great bits afterwards, and you're like, oh, I'd love to be like that. And that is all very well and good. But Jesus' example and Peter's teaching should prepare us for the fact that when we act In a holy manner, when we are generous, when we are forgiving, when we are upright, when we are humble, when we are kind, we will not always be well received. Sometimes people take your behaviour inspired by Jesus and uh, come back at you unfavourably. And this is for a whole range of reasons. Sometimes they think we're sort of stuck up and they think uh, we're holier than thou and there are those accusations. And sometimes it's feelings of guilt and sometimes uh, it's just a destructive desire within them. But all time and time again, Christians face all sorts of opposition for conduct um, that is like Jesus, Suffering is a hallmark of the Christian life. Now, I do not mean self-inflicted hardship, like you were enticed when you went into PC World and you took out a £2,000 loan on a top-of-the-range Apple Mac uh, computer and now you're £2,000 in debt and you're like... Uh, Lord, I'm in hardship now. And and Peter's not talking about this self-inflicted one where we damage relationships and it all goes wrong and then we go, oh, woe is me. And again, that is self-inflicted suffering that Peter is not talking about. He is talking about when we behave well, when we behave like Jesus, when we are kind and generous and thoughtful and people come back at us in a way that is hurtful. We do not suffer as Christ did when we have a hangover this morning because we drunk too much last night. That is not what Peter's talking about. However, when we mimic Jesus, when we live beautifully, but we still endure pain, Peter goes, I recognise that, and that is what I'm talking about. If you've been good and upright and holy and kind and generous, and you are still suffering... You need to listen to me. And so, let me tell you, social persecution, physical sickness, and relational betrayal can be forms of this. Now, I've got to be careful because uh, these things can be complicated, but if we copy Jesus and our friends keep it as arm's length, if we... Uh, uh, endure some sort of uh, a mental or physical sickness or we are betrayed in our important relationships Peter goes yeah that is suffering and when you do it your number one priority is not just to take more paracetamol what you are doing when you bear up under suffering you are proving that Jesus owns you you are proving that he is your Lord rather than comfort, rather than pleasure, rather than blessing. If you can walk with Jesus when life is unfair to you, that should prove to you where your affiliation is, and it also lifts Jesus up. When you come here on a Sunday morning and you have had a rotten week, your arthritis has played up, your husband has just made uh, your Christian faith really difficult, Um, when uh, other things have attacked you, and you come and praise Jesus, you are showing that you are not just in it for the blessings, that you're not in it uh, for a nice car and a nice house and an easy life. You are showing that you love him. And when we mimic Jesus in our conduct, when we trust him in times where we are unfairly under the cosh, we know a greater intimacy with God. Those that have gone through trials know God really, really well. Paul wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament because he knew God really well, and There is no one that can trump Paul for enduring everything from shipwrecks, which we would call accidental, but Paul sees as a credential of his faith, to uh, sort of floggings and arrests and everything else. There is a story we need to tell ourselves, that when we face unfairness, it's not because God hates us, but it's this part of this journey of loving Jesus. I did not expect as many hallelujahs as I got last week. Right, in 1844, um, a French newspaper started uh, telling a story. It would be an epic story that you and I know as a literary classic. One that is famous uh, uh, for uh, well over uh, 150 years. And the story would come out with the new editions of the newspaper and it became really popular in Europe. If you think sort of uh, the TV shows of uh, sort of Game of Thrones or something else and the popularity of that is a new thing, listen to this. So this is one commentator uh, just after this story started to be told. Day after day, at breakfast or at work or on the street... People talked of little else. This story that was published in 18, started began in 1844 spread like wildfire and people enjo- enjoyed it, they devoured it, they wanted to know what happened next, they would talk about it amongst their friends and family. Who, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think has happened? Where is it all going to go? Now today we know the story is The Count of Monte Cristo and it's by Alexander Dumas and um, to the last count that was made, there are 29 films made of this story. It is uh, quite popular. Now, for our purposes this morning, you may be wondering, what on earth am I going on about this story for? Well, essentially, this book, and I do love that size. So that, is a, that is a classic book. You can use that as a doorstop. You can uh, uh, use it as a threat of punishment for children. You can... Uh, Um, you can probably break into somewhere with that sort of uh, uh, size of literature. The story is simply one of revenge. There is a sailor, and he is expecting marriage and promotion. He is on the cusp of greatness, of making it in life. And there are some rivals in his life and they ruinously betray him, um, and he finds himself in prison for treason. And uh, this is uh, one of the film's uh, sort of description. Uh, if you can see it, he's uh, he's not looking good. Is this guy so? Uh, um, Edmund Dantes, who is the, the 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 protagonist, he's in a bad place, in prison for treason, and. He, He is no longer uh, um, going to marry this uh, beautiful lady and he's no longer going to be promoted on the ship he was working in. And I want you to listen to this moment. He is in prison. He is talking uh, to this guy um, about his problems. At this instant, a bright light shot through the mind of Dante's and cleared up all that had been dark and obscure before. That change that had came over Villefort during the examination, and he's thinking about all the things that had happened to him up to that point of being accused of treason. Um, The destruction of the letter, the exacted promise, um, the tones of the magistrate, who seemed to rather implore mercy than denounce punishment, all returned with a stunning force to his memory. Um, mental agony, a noise of this, escaped his lips, and he staggered against the wall like a drunken man. And then, as the paroxysm passed away, he hurried to the opening conduct um, of the cell and said, I must be alone to think this all over. So he's moved away from his mate to think over the implications of this realisation. When he regained his dungeon, he threw himself on his bed where the uh, prison guard found him at his evening visit, sitting with a fixed gaze and contracted features, still and motionless as a statue. During these hours of deep meditation, um, they seemed to him like minutes. He formed a fearful resolution and bound himself to its fulfillment by a solemn oath. If this was televised, you would hear this dun, dun, dun. So Dante's was at length roused uh, from his meditation by the voice of his friend, who, having also been visited by his jailer, had come to invite his fellow sufferer to share his suffer. Dante's followed him with a firm and assured step, and his features had lost um, their previous expression, and he now uh, wore uh, the one that they were familiar with. But there was in his whole appearance that bespoke one who had come to a fixed and desperate resolve. This guy is now changed. His friend bent on him his penetrating eye. He says, "I regret having helped you in your later thoughts, or having given you the information I did." Why so? Inquired Dante's, Because it installed a new passion in your heart—that of vengeance. A bitter smile played over the features of the young man. And for the rest, and uh, it's well—it's uh, about a thousand pages. We are told of the acts of vengeance. Of Edmund Dante's on his enemies. I wonder what your natural reaction is when you are unjustly accused, unjustly betrayed, when you are marginalized, and when people uh, doubt your motivations, and even when you're attacked. How do you feel? Reactions tend to fall into two categories. Firstly, we try and defend ourselves. If, if someone is being unfair to us, we like to stand up for ourselves. Um, if you're attacked, you stick out your hands. If you are slandered, we argue back. And if you've ever had children, you will know that that is what they do. If you say to them, oh, did you do this? And they protest loudly and they shout... Um, and then, um, if that doesn't work, then they accuse and point the finger to other people. Um, and so secondly, you can either try and defend yourself or you can go all Edmund Dante and hit back and retaliate. And both of these are very logical and very natural. Um, children often do it and we often do it. I've done it in work situations where someone has said something about me and it is not true. But, for a Christian, this phenomenon is more profound. Peter tells us, as believers, there is an inevitability of suffering, and we need to be awake to it, and we need to be discerning to it. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, verse 22 So Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth When they hurled insults at him he did not retaliate Everyone say retaliate, retaliate. He did not retaliate When he suffered he made no frets Everyone say no frets Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is a challenge this morning. Apparently, Jesus doesn't just guarantee that his followers will face suffering, but he also determines how we react to that suffering. Jesus faced outrageous false accusations and unjust beatings and floggings. And he did not protest his innocence. And he says, Those that love me do the same. Perhaps you remember that account I read from John 19 of Pilate coming to him, just say something, speak up for yourself. You are going to be executed unless you say something. I think you're innocent. And Jesus does not stand up for himself because he sees and trusts in his father's plan. And Peter tells us that we are to copy Jesus in this. And this is a challenge. This is not easy, um, either as a principle or as an application. But Peter is calling Christians to surrender to suffering. To surrender to a difficult life. To surrender to unjust treatment. Now, sometimes, defending yourself is legitimate defending yourself is appropriate for Christians. I've done it before, a board of uh, people at work that had a false accusation. When the Apostle Paul faces unjust treatment, he is happy to identify himself as a Roman citizen and say, you need to treat me differently to that which you are. However, and this is Peter's challenge for us this morning. Sometimes there are moments when we are in a Jesus-like situation, when we are facing unjust accusations, unjust marginalisation, unjust attacks, and we meet it not with, that is not fair, Uh, don't you know who I am, or he did it, but with quietness and prayer. Sometimes we don't just immediately assert ourselves, but we trust our future is held by God, not by our ability uh, to make a loud noise. It's not that we forget justice, it's not that we pretend justice doesn't exist, but we say, God, I believe you're sovereign. And I think in this situation, your will and your purposes is going to come out, and I'm going to keep quiet. And I think in each of us, these moments are different. I think you have to be uh, in tune with the Holy Spirit as to when to speak up and when to not. But let me tell you, Peter makes very clearly that sometimes when you are falsely accused... You have to submit like Jesus did. This is not an easy message and this is the sort of thing that allows Christians to face all sorts of abuse and subjugation because we're not going to speak back. But somehow, just as Jesus is our uh, mentor, somehow we do the same and it gives God's glory. And so when these things come... I just ask you to remember Peter's advice and consider how you're going to respond. Right. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, the last couple of verses. It says this in 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body. It's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? I wonder how many of you are comfortable with that. I wonder how many could explain that. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have been returned to the Shepherd an overseer of your souls. There's some great phrases and titles for Jesus. I love Jesus being the shepherd, and I love him being the overseer of my soul. If Jesus is overseeing my soul, then I think uh, I'm in a safe place. So the final thing I want to say uh, from the dying words of chapter 2 is just reflect on the thoughts of salvation earlier this year we had a baptism class and we had uh uh, two willing candidates you know they they weren't sort of uh uh, proffered up as sacrifice but they came because they wanted to get baptized and we sat down on our sofas and the question is are you a christian what makes you a christian And let me tell you, if you ever find yourself in that position, do not mention, I try really hard to be good, or I go to church, or I was baptised as an infant, because those don't wash. Those don't wash with me, and uh, the Apostle Peter has no truck with them either. If that's what makes you, you think you're a Christian, then uh, we need to go back to basics. Peter tells us, Quite clearly and singularly, we are saved by Jesus dying on the cross. doesn't matter how many times you come here. doesn't matter how much you put in the offering bag. doesn't matter how good you are, whether you give all your wealth to the poor. It doesn't matter if you're nice to even the nasty people on the bus. These things do not bring you salvation. One thing does that trust in Jesus' death on a cross. Jesus is the middle of salvation and he is the means of salvation. Um, I don't think you get quite into trouble yet, but every other faith that doesn't worship Jesus as Lord and King is futile. Every other religion that doesn't have Jesus in the middle of it is futile. Every person's personal faith And we live in a wonderfully uh, independent secular society where everyone has their own idea of what it means uh, to be saved or what it means for eternity. Let me tell you, if Jesus is not the middle of it, then it is futile. If you sit on my sofa and I ask you, what makes you a Christian, and your first words aren't Jesus, and he's dying for you, then you're not a Christian. That is the middle of it all. That is the crux of it. Now, this is a start, but I want to inflate that picture a bit more, give you a bit more context. I want to let you know a little bit more of what Peter means by this. I want to let you know The sort of things I said to my uh, son just before he started school and when we led him to Christ. I want you to know what it is and isn't to be a Christian. If you've got a Bible, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Does anyone know the Son's name? Jesus! Thank you. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. I really love this beginning of Hebrews. He has appointed him heir of all things, and through him also he made the universe. Jesus is creator fascinating the sun is the radiance of God's glory you want to know what God looks like look at Jesus and you'll see him perfectly he is the exact representation of his being Jesus is not a copy he's not a facsimile of God he is the same if you look at Jesus then you see what the father is like And theologians and Christians and thinkers have argued over these sort of sentences. But it is quite clear that uh, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is God. He is the same. If you look at one, you see the other. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is not just a man. After he had provided purification for sins, and that was his death on the cross... Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, you need to get your Christiology right and so we're going to go through these passages. Um, verse 14 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. Since the children have flesh and blood. Anyone here got flesh and blood? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, all who live their lives held in slavery by fear of death. If you love Jesus, you are free. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah! You can be slightly more excited than that. One more time. Hallelujah! Some of you have just gone for louder, but there we go. Um, For surely, it is not angels he helps. God did not send Jesus to help angels, but us. And it's a mystery and something for another sermon, I think. But Abraham's descendants, so this reason, he had to be made like them. Fully human in every way. Everyone say, fully. Fully fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might might make atonement. Everyone say atonement. Atonement. There are all sorts of technical language in Christianity, and you should... Let me encourage you to be happy with it. Let me encourage you to embrace it. There are technical words in the Bible, but they are important, and Christians, even ones with low-level education, have grown to love them. Um, I love our brother, the Chav Church guy up north, and he loves his theology, and he's got all sorts of this Chav Church congregation, and he teaches them technical terms, because it is not just reading the Bible where you just take the bits that are easy to understand. It is the full revelation of God, and it is good to know what atonement means. I wonder how many of you, if I invited you up here, you would love to give a brief description and implications of atonement um, in your faith. And if you can't, there's some reading out there for you guys to get to grips with. So it goes on. For the atonement for the sins of the people, because Jesus himself suffered, interesting we find that word again, when he was tempted and he is able to help those who are tempted. Anyone ever been tempted in this room? Anyone looking forward to some temptations the the week coming? (laughs) Jesus understands. There is no other saviour on heaven and earth that understands you like Jesus. There is no other saviour that knows the issues of the flesh like Jesus. We find in Hebrews this clear articulation of who Jesus of Nazareth was. He was God the Son. He is God the Son. He is part of this mysterious trinity which theologians have struggled to describe for 2000 years. Jesus has always existed. Secondly, he was fully human and we read that from uh Hebrews as well. Jesus was completely God and fully human. He was born naturally and had skin and bones like you. He got tired, he laughed, he bled. Jesus is the only candidate, the only perfect candidate to bridge the moral chasm between humanity and God because he represented both of them perfectly. He was completely God and completely human. It is a mystery, there are books out there that try and work out this unity of uh, two um, attributes in one man. But the Bible makes clear that that's what happens. Let me make very clear. Any person and any group that looks Christian but denies that either Jesus was, um, is and was God eternal... And is fully human and not a ghost and not just a wise man. It's not Christian. So the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and some of the other sects and groups, that they're not Christian. You need God, you need Jesus to be fully God and fully human. That is what Scripture teaches and anything that erodes from that isn't true. This is basic 101. If some of you are learning stuff, then partly shame on me for not uh, uh bringing it up sooner but this is critical for you to know and for you to establish in your mind um and if you, this is new to you you need to look at scripture and say do i believe this and if not perhaps you need to go somewhere else let me read you now what is possibly a very early creed uh Christians have come up with creed statements of faith for generations. Um, and this is, they're good, but because they don't appear in the Bible, I don't try and make too much of a big thing of them. But this is possibly the, one of the earliest Christian creeds uh, on record. And if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I really like this passage as kind of a summary, an early summary of faith says this, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. So Paul is telling them the gospel. By this gospel, you are saved. By this good news of Jesus, you are saved. Not by good deeds or anything else, but by this gospel. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, you don't try and take bits away from Paul, you'll let Paul speak and accept his words uh, lock, stock and barrel. If you add or subtract from Paul's words, he tells you, you have believed in vain. If Jesus is less than human, you have believed in vain. If Jesus is less than God, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Everyone say first first importance. This is critical. You need to get this in your mind and in your brain. This is something that divides the believer from the unbeliever, the Christian from the non-Christian, the in from the out, the one that has expectation of eternal life to one that doesn't. This is of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. And when he says Christ, we find uh, all sorts of things packaged up in that word and we've looked at them, Jesus being God and man. Um, For Christ... Uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So you can't pretend that he didn't die or that he wasn't buried um, and you can't pretend that uh, he didn't rise again. If you pretend those things, you are outside... Orthodoxy. You are outside something that Paul would call a Christian. If you say Jesus died and then rose spiritually, you are outside orthodoxy. If you say, "Well, he fainted in the tomb and then came back to life," you are outside the Christian uh, brotherhood and sisterhood. And then he appeared to Cephas. Anyone know Cephas's name? Peter. Of course, it's Peter. And then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to the more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Paul was very concerned that people knew that Jesus didn't appear secretly like a secret squirrel to a couple of people and then wandered off. He let him known himself known to 500 people. This was a public truth. Um, appeared to 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So most of them were alive when Paul was talking. And you can go and ask them, talk to me about Jesus. And they go, let me tell you about Jesus, who I saw in the flesh after he died and rose again. And then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And Paul kind of uh, is a, a, a footnote to this story. In this gloriously concise passage... Paul tells us that this fully God, fully man, achieved our redemption through dying on the cross. He died as a sacrifice for our sake. That is the middle of this. He took on a penalty and punishment for our sins. We all sin, we all do wrong, we all uh, live our lives independently often of God, and all that is paid for by Jesus' sacrifice. Because of Jesus, this shepherd and overseer of our souls, we are morally and spiritually healed. Um, there is this, uh, this phrase that by stripes we are healed and Peter uses it to say, not that your arthritis goes in Jesus' name or that you can expect To live without asthma or diabetes, he says you are morally and spiritually healed by what Jesus did on the cross. You no longer have to sin, you no longer have to gossip, you no longer have to get drunk, you no longer have to uh, uh, whinge and moan unjustly, you no longer have to steal, um, all these things. You are released from that. This is good news. I would say it was great news. A life lived in this reality should be able to endure any suffering. Because we have a new status. This, this world is not all there is. And we look forward to an eternity that we have made, been made pure for. And so we can suffer injustice and not protest We can know and enjoy God being sovereign, where we don't have to right all the wrongs because God is in heaven and on his throne and he is in charge. And our salvation, which mysteriously, Michaela was talking about earlier being secure, that's the final words of this talk, is that your salvation is secure because it rests on what Jesus did rather than how good you are at being good. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the words of Peter. God, they're not easy, but Lord God, I pray that we would be good at living them out. God, we understand that Jesus suffered before he died and that there is a path that you call each of us to walk In some respects, that mimics this. Lord God, I pray that when unjust suffering comes, that we would be good at working out when to protest and when to be silent. Lord God, uh, I pray that we would be good at allowing you to be sovereign. That Lord God, we won't take take it upon ourselves. Uh, uh, To make everything just on our behalf, but we will allow you uh, in the fullness of time to bring justice. And Lord God, I just pray for this issue of salvation, that each of us would be clear the manner of our salvation, what we believe, and that we would be good at articulating it to ourselves and to others, that we would be... uh, Kind and generous with those that don't know you, but we would be very clear about the truth. Uh, Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.